Welcome to It Is What It Is. I'm Corbin. And I'm Anthony. And we're bringing you a special episode. It may not seem that special to you, but for us, we've been recording these on a weekly basis and have quite a few queued up. But we wanted to respond to events that happened this week, uh, some historic stuff as far as related to NBA basketball and to professional sports, but also some timely stuff related to the United States of America and uh, what's happening in our culture and times. So we, I just wanted to kind of spend a second and explain what happened, and then we'll have an actual conversation related to this. So there was uh, a man, Jacob Blake, that was shot in the back while, by police while returning to his vehicle. His kids were in the car, still exploring what happened in that situation. But it led to protests of yet another Black man being shot by police uh, when in other situations, white people seem to be able to protest and, and do, you know, activities with impunity, walking around with guns at the state house and that kind of thing. So addressing racial injustice. And so there were protests. And in response to that protest, again, a white man uh, walking around carrying a gun, uh, shot and killed some people. And, uh, you know, the police were right there and just kind of encouraged or allowed the vigilante kind of attitude until he shot somebody. So uh, with this kind of inequity between how whites and blacks are treated, the NBA players who had already kind of had some very public act activism in light of stuff earlier this summer with George Floyd killing and uh, Breonna Taylor, there's been public protests. There seems to be some momentum to actually change things, but it's still happening. So uh, athletes in the NBA, a lot of them black, uh, decided that they were going to protest by not playing. So the Milwaukee Bucks and this, these events happened, the most recent events happened in Wisconsin. The Milwaukee Bucks were supposed to take the stage first on a playoff game day, and they just did not come out of their locker room. They, they said, we're not playing. They had a several hour team meeting and then left. And so that game was uh, boycotted and instead of calling it a forfeit, the NBA determined that they were going to uh, say that it was postponed. So they, you know, prevented the players from any kind of consequences, punishment, that kind of thing. And that enabled teams after that to also boycott their game. So for two days, no NBA, NBAA playoff games were played. So we had a question that we came up with that is kind of in response to the situation, but also as like a, an opportunity to reflect and think, do celebrities or should celebrities use their platform for social change? And uh, yeah. I, I guess let's just start there. Yeah, good. So, I mean, one, one thing that you hear uh, when something like this happens is the group that feels that their view is not being expressed by the symbolic act. So the act of boycotting the, the games and not playing was to express a particular viewpoint. And that is that there's racial injustice, that black lives are not being treated the same as other lives, especially white lives, and that police violence against blacks needs to be addressed, uh, that we have a social problem that needs to be addressed. And, uh, you know, with a country with as many points of view and types of people as we have, there's going to be disagreement even on super important and uh, difficult topics, uh, as well as things that maybe some of us think shouldn't be difficult, which would be something like protecting everybody's life and, and uh, having fairness and equality in society. 
what that means, those, those abstract terms might be something that we can agree on, but then what does that mean in actuality and practice? So one thing that we hear in response to somebody making this kind of protest or symbolic gesture about violence against Black lives is, well, everybody's welcome to their own opinion. We all need to have individual freedom. And it's not fair that celebrities can use this added access of having a camera pointed at them and having all eyes turned to them to kind of have this propaganda machine to make one view, the popular view and everything else is shamed or uh, taken out of public discourse. So some people say that celebrities should not use their platform because it prohibits us having a really true and good dialogue about, about the underlying issues. That's probably a rosy way to point it, but yeah. I had this thought that, you know, at first I was like, should celebrities actually be allowed the platform? Because um, maybe it's not fair. Maybe because they're on camera all the time, they're just taking advantage of an opportunity. The thing that really got me to, to itch my brain was that everybody takes advantage of the opportunity to say whatever it is they feel the need to say uh, whenever they want to. And some people will are a little bit more reserved and will give people the, the time and space to, to talk. And, you know, some of these conversations happen with family, um, which is important. Conversation is a really important aspect of our society. Um, but, you know, social media has kind of given us this, like, individual celebrity complex where we feel we can say whatever we need to say whenever we want. And mm. maybe not everybody takes advantage of social media, but to me, uh, this whole conversation of around celebrity um, allows for a, an individual to kind of fight fire with fire. And maybe that's not right, but I, I do think it's fair. So uh, it takes the sting out of the unfairness that maybe is is the presumptive reason for for saying celebrities shouldn't use their platform is that is that what you're saying mm -hmm. okay uh, so i tend to be instead of somebody that uses social media to announce my opinion on every little thing that happens um i don't actually like to get up and make a public pronouncement because my mind changes too frequently and i don't want people to hold that against me later <laughs> um but i did feel after the events this week that I couldn't remain silent. It felt like negligence to to not acknowledge what was happening in our society, especially as a you know somebody who's a white male by other people's standards and and has advantages and privileges that that affords. I felt like I needed to be uh, supportive of those that were were calling for this injustice to be addressed. You know, if I do have privileges, I should use them to help equal the playing field, equalize the playing field. So this idea of systemic or structural racism, I think, is an important one. Do you want to elaborate on, on how you understand that? Yeah, so uh, I actually have a story about that. So about, I want to say it was five years ago now, um, I was working for Girl Scouts, and I got sent to this uh, teacher professional development in Minnesota. It was a whole, it was a week program. And so the whole program was designed about helping you identify structural biases that you have within your you know within your school and your own teaching style and you know i realized in that 
during that week that there's a lot of things that I don't know that I say and do that may be exclusive of of a certain group. And it was all made painfully aware to me uh, when we were talking about um, def definitions of ourselves, of you know, of an individual and how we would define ourselves. And then we were starting to think about ways that we've been, you know, may or may not have been discriminated against because of certain character traits. And I wasn't even aware of this, but somebody else uh, had identified and told their story. And then, like, all of a sudden I saw all these points in my life where this had actually happened to me. And so what I'm getting at here is uh, I'm left-handed, right? And there, as I look back and reflected on my life, I've realized that there was never a situation in school or in the workplace where I was comfortable because I'm left-handed. You know, spiral notebooks, we write from left to right, spiral notebooks, the spiral's on the left-hand side, and my the way I write, the spiral falls right on my hand. So I would either have to like arch my hand to get over the spirals or just deal with it and have a metal impression down my wrist. And, huh. you know, uh, in high school, desks became smaller. And so you have like a little workspace, probably about this big, about the size of a notebook, and an arm that goes down. And of course, it's on the right side. And so um, I remember one time a teacher actually kind of yelled at me because of how I had my desk. But the only way for me to be comfortable in my desk was I had to sit sideways so that my notebook and my arm could rest on the actual desk itself because the whole rest of it was just empty space. And, right. um, and so like from my perspective growing up, I had never been afforded the opportunity to have left-handed things. And I know there was like a whole Simpsons episode about this that saved like Ned Flanders business. <laughs> um, but because you live in a right-handed world, you just don't, you don't understand or see it until it's made explicit. And of course, righties aren't going to notice because everything is to them. This is the norm. This is comfortable. And so uh, if you're like not made aware that lefties have this problem, why would you ever try to address that problem? Right. And so yeah, no, that's... And so I, I guess the whole point was just to say, like, you know, this week actually pointed that out to me and that I shouldn't use this to to push back on this concept that, you know, the things I say and do are in the name of science when it's actually just, um, you know, personal biases that I've had my whole life. And that now I, instead of trying to to fight the system, I should really try and pay it forward and, and make change from here on out. That's good. Yeah. Uh First of all, I'm embarrassed as a friend to not realize that you were left-handed. <laughs> I don't know how after all these years that never I never picked up on this. But, uh, um, so I uh, instead of sharing, you know, growing up, uh, I I was called Spick and some other things primarily because of my last name because I present pretty pretty well as white. But um, I I can't say that I encountered the kind of stuff that would be characterized truly as racial injustice. I, I've lived a pretty, um, pretty privileged life. So I wanted to talk about how personal bias and these explicit kind of beliefs that we are rejecting as racism 
are related to structural racism and that uh, might help some of us that are worried about feeling like we're being attacked you know i I'm not racist. I'm not racist, uh, and trying to protect our innocence or our, our blamelessness um, might need to take a look around and see that we share some responsibility, even if we don't want to call it. Historically, there have been people with racialized attitudes that treated blacks, Native Americans, Latin people, with uh, kind of a superiority. They they treated them like they weren't fully humans. They were uh, okay to enslave and use and to build material wealth on. It was okay to take their land and possessions. And so a lot of the resources that helped to prop up the United States early on was, you know, derived from these kind of very strong racial attitudes. And that was brought in institutionally into our society by passing down generational wealth, you know, so inheritances by setting up laws that protected property rights. So forcing people that weren't landowners to kind of be uh, indebted to or subservient to the desires of those that had land. There's been a lot of things that set up the rules of the game. I just wanna say like our beliefs and, and the situations that we find ourselves in, the, the circumstances, the concrete circumstances are intermingled. My beliefs are shaped by those circumstances and the things I do now have long-term consequences that will shape circumstances for generations to come. Yeah, I think we're we're kind of seeing that play out in real time right now with um, the the change to what is the Project 1619 by the New York Times the uh, the shift in the history textbook narrative by including more um, Native uh, and Black history to it and also you know honestly telling the truth about what happened in white history and so you know project 1619 is really all about telling this complete story or as complete as possible and i think about it a lot in terms of uh, you know obviously there's like the systemic component to it because you know we tell very i don't know whitewashed but also very specific stories in the u.s history time the global timeline um, and other things that were just as pivotal, but not as pivotal to United States culture, are either told very quickly or not told at all. I think one thing that I didn't articulate in my little rant was that uh, it doesn't have to be explicit attitudes, right? Our, our habits, our preferences, our kind of implicit biases the things that we would jump to conclusions and not even realize that we're making assumptions a lot of that happens at a subconscious level where we've been habituated into certain ways of thinking and acting so in a in a certain sense structural racism is also a belief you know an attitude kind of thing so i don't want to say it's never an attitude thing or that people um you know shouldn't worry about their own personal attitudes if they believe that races are equal because we do have things like I've demonstrated a couple times already in this in this discussion where um, we don't have fully uh, fully appropriate or, or enlightened uh, perspectives on race you know we incorporate stereotypes and, and assumptions that are harmful and uh, don't even realize it just because it's been allowed to to carry through it's how we were educated it was what we heard around us and so we take it as the norm and that is why uh, we need to be 
I think a little bit more honest and a little bit more willing to have these uncomfortable conversations uh, to help expose, even in just trying to articulate what I think is a fair point, I start to realize, wow, that there's some heavy assumptions of privilege in, in that kind of conversation. Um, going back to the NBA players using their platform. Fans have been fans. The public has been divided on this, uh, but I think more fans have been supportive of the players uh, refusing to play than I expected, especially considering how much people were relying on sports to kind of break them out of uh, the anxiety and frustration that COVID has brought us. Um, people have been desperately wanting something to latch onto that is positive. And it seemed like the NBA restart had, had done that for a lot of people. But what I was impressed with was that team ownership, coaches, uh, throughout the organization, the NBA seemed to really respond to what was happening with the players and in society and took a stand. They basically said, we side with the players. And unlike the Colin Kaepernick kneeling for the anthem and uh, other kinds of protests that we've seen in other sports where players were kind of left out to the mercy of public opinion and um, fined or penalized, criticized, bruised, altered, uh, the NBA stood behind their players and said, uh, we partner with them and we understand this concern matters to them as human beings, not just as people who make money and entertain us and recognize that they are individuals more above their celebrity persona. So when we ask this question, should celebrities be allowed to use a platform? I think we have to, we have to remember that, yes, they are afforded something special that not all of us have but they are human beings that have thoughts and feelings and should be allowed to be human as much as they want to. Like if they want to protect their personal lives from the public scrutiny, that's fine too. But if they want to speak out, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. If, if you want to use the platform, then you open yourself up to kind of public criticism and, and investigation. But um, if, if you're willing to have that engagement and participate with the avenues of conversation that you have because of your position, because of your celebrity, I think that is a way to recognize your full humanity instead of just reducing you to some kind of a celebrity icon, which I think we do too often. We, we want our celebrities to just be something that we appreciate for what they can do for us in entertainment. And we don't want them to be actual human beings that uh, who have to participate in the society with us. Yeah, they're kind of like the modern god. Um, they are idolized in one way, but they're not allowed to be anything other than that. And uh, going back to something you said earlier, I think this ties in really well here, was this uh, concept of, of being fully free. Um, because, you know, if we're fully free in the way that you defined earlier, um, we kind of need these differences of perspectives to be able to to see the full picture right if if we were if we were saying that we were fully free and we weren't allowing celebrities to voice their opinions we weren't allowing allowing our own citizens to voice their opinions uh, or at least their experiences I'll, I'll frame it that way instead then you know we would only have one perspective and that's whatever perspective is the predominant power party there's actually been a few issues that I wouldn't even even known about if it wasn't for, uh, you know, celebrities using their platform. And 
I think to me the only the only potential issue is uh, in the like what defines social good because that kind of skews what we are and are not allowed to say. It's a good thought um, and a tough one. I, you mentioned freedom earlier, and I really uh, wanted to touch on that for a second because I think ultimately what we need to have a conversation weave it. I feel like something that's been missing in society is having a conversation about a positive conception of freedom. So just for some terminology uh, quickly, negative, a negative conception of freedom is freedom from, freedom from constraint. You can't tell me what to do. I can do what I want without government or authorities or public pressure, peer pressure, uh, shame. Like I should just be free from all of that to do whatever I desire. But then there's a positive conception of freedom uh, that is freedom for the ability to become self-realized for some particular vision of the good life. And the difficult thing is that a positive conception of freedom requires some content, right? The negative conception of freedom just allows me to live out my impulses, whatever my desires, habits, inclinations are, I can just go do those things and, I, and nobody's going to bother me. Um, but a positive conception of freedom makes us, uh, has, makes us consider what kind of a being am I and what would be a good use of my energy and time and collectively what is a good way for us to live together so freedom for is not just an individual uh, pursuit it's a it's a social pursuit because we're engaged with one another at a very intricate uh, and intertwined level so I, I really think that we do need to have this conversation about freedom but we need to have it not on the kind of negative empty side of leave me alone I'm going to do what I want to do but rather on a what would it mean for everybody to be truly free to have the opportunity to to self-realize the good and what is it what is the good that we're pursuing I think this is where uh, norms play such a big role um, because norms change as society changes and it's foolish for us to to have the same mindset you know it it might be okay to think one way you know like a hundred years ago but of course the values of society change over that time so it's foolish for us to maintain those same values yeah yeah at least maybe there's a conversation that starts then or is accelerated then that needs to still happen uh, we still have uh, things that need to be improved but uh, I think that's I think that's where we're at now. When people criticize celebrities for for talking, part of me thinks that they want their opinions, their personal preferences, the the critic the critics, to be protected from anything different. I don't want to hear anything that disagrees with my point of view. And um, to me, that's it's kind of a weak way to express your own freedom. If, if you really want to have the freedom to be a particular way, to think a certain way, then um, that requires some kind of risk. It requires being able to enter that perspective into a public arena of discourse, to take questions, to defend your positions. Uh, there might be points where people just can't agree on common assumptions and so have a hard time building any kind of common ground to work from. But if you just don't engage or you refuse to let anybody have a different position than, than you, at least in your sphere of influence, then to me, that isn't a, a common conception of good. There, there's no 
positive vision that you're pursuing. And I think what we need to figure out is, is there, are there positive visions? Are there things that we can do that can improve the lives of those that have been unfairly uh, oppressed, exploited, and robbed, and killed, and beaten? Is there a way that we can find uh, a way forward so that their lives can have some semblance of the kind of liberty and uh, peace that some of us have, have been afforded? And even if that costs some of us the comfort of maybe entering our thoughts into a risky business of, of public discourse and losing some of our advantages. You know, if you are surrounded by a like-minded community, you're only going to have the values of that community. And so I think like in the, in the honor of true democracy, you have to listen to other communities because as like a nation, right? We're supposed to be a nation of mixed communities. We have to be able to to make changes and improvements that suit the need of all of the citizens. I mean, that's like the role of government and that's like the role of a country. You know, you can't just pick and choose which populations you're going to abide by. And what's so frustrating to me as conversations become polarized is um, it's become okay to only listen to your specific community's values and like have this kind of like freedom from mentality when looking at other communities' values. Yeah. So how do you feel about players using their platform? So, so ultimately, I think it's fine. I really like the point that you made that because of social media, now we have a chance to engage that. It's not one direction. I think that's the biggest thing that's always bothered me is when it's preachy and like you only get to receive information. But now you can comment, you can respond. Uh, we can have video and podcasts like this where two guys with without a public platform still get to say what they think. So I, I think uh, it's good for players to be able to say what they feel and what, what matters to them. Typically, we end these conversations with something like it is what it is. But I think in this case, it is what it is defeats the purpose of this conversation in the first place. Um, so it isn't what it is. 